Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and it's time for the News Roundup. Frightening Fiona lashed at Puerto Rico this week, but U.S. President Joe Biden has promised the full force of the federal government to help their hurricane recovery efforts. The Fed is intensifying the battle against inflation, and the president says the COVID pandemic is apparently over. We'll get into it, and of course, the twists and turns in Trump's legal battles. Joining us from New York is Mary Harris. She's host and managing editor of What Next? That's Slate's daily news podcast. Mary, thanks for joining us. Jen, it's great to be here. In Washington, D.C., we have Josh Meyer. He's security correspondent at USA Today. Josh, welcome. Thanks, Jen. Great to be here. And here with me in studio is Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Welcome back, Julie. Thanks for having me. Well, on Wednesday, New York Attorney General Letitia James dropped this bombshell. I am announcing that today we are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. The complaint demonstrates that Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system, thereby cheating all of us. The civil lawsuit follows a three-year investigation into former President Trump. It also targets members of his executive team, including some of his children. It accuses them of generating fraudulent financial statements for years to achieve various financial benefits. Mary, the 220-page lawsuit filed in a Manhattan court seeks at least $250 million in damages. We heard a bit from James there about the investigation's findings, but what else did they uncover about Trump's alleged conduct? Well, I don't know if you had a chance to watch the full press conference from Tish James, but it was just so dramatic. And she really laid out these very specific instances where she says that the Trump family lied about their net worth. Example, um, after a bank ordered an appraisal of 40 Wall Street, um, they, they said it was $200 million. The Trumps promptly valued it at twice that amount, which is a lot more. (laughs) Um, They say that Trump actually uh, said his own apartment was three times bigger than it was, so he could claim it was worth hundreds of millions of dollars more. And with that came all kinds of benefits. So it's very specific in what it's saying. And I think that that is really an advantage that Tish James has here. Josh, what would this lawsuit effectively do? Uh, well, you know, we, we do, uh, Jen, use the word bombshell a lot when it comes to Trump, but this really is like a, a mega bombshell. I think this could effectively put the Trump organization out of business. And remember, they're facing a criminal trial uh, coming up in just a couple of weeks, too. But, you know, because of the the depth and breadth of the allegations, I mean, we're talking, you know, this is a massive lawsuit. I mean, hundreds of pages of detail here. Um, it could effectively put them out of business, but even more uh, immediately, it could stop them from uh, any of the Trump family uh, that named in the suit you know, the three adult children and Trump himself from engaging in real estate transactions through the Trump organization for five years, I believe it is, and and other activities. So it could put them out of business or at least sideline them. And don't forget, she also referred criminal charges to the uh, federal 
authorities to the Justice Department and also to the IRS. So, uh, you know, there's people, including former prosecutor Andrew Weissman, who's very familiar with the Trump organization, uh, who say that this is basically like a nail in the coffin of the Trump organization, if not Trump himself. Now, Mary, former President Trump took to his truth social platform, calling James a, quote, terrible AG when it comes to protecting the people of New York State, end quote. What sort of reaction did his comments get? Well, I I don't I mean, listen to the comments. They're not about the actual accusations. To me, that's what stands out about them. I mean, he says this is a witch hunt by a racist attorney general, that she's a fraud who campaigned on a Get Trump platform. None of that is about the actual allegations. And I really think that's important to pay attention to here, because as we get into more detail about Trump and his legal woes, this is a common pattern of a lot of bluster from Trump himself. And then in the courtroom, you know, backing up that bluster is not something that his lawyers find particularly easy to do. So to me, when I looked at how Trump responded, that's really what I took away from it. Well, this lawsuit comes as Trump faces a series of other legal challenges. On Tuesday, the federal judge reviewing the material seized by the FBI from Mar-a-Lago aggressively questioned the former president's attorneys during the first hearing in federal court. Judge Raymond Deary warned Trump's team that, quote, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Julie, what is the judge saying to Trump's legal team there? He's basically calling his bluff. We've seen Trump uh, and and some of his his uh, supporters make all these accusations in the media and on True Social, but not in any of the legal filings where there would be, you know, uh, problems. Uh, you could you could get in trouble for lying in these legal filings. So basically, the judge is saying, you know, if you think that there is evidence of this, then you need to tell me formally, and if there's not, you should stop saying it. Now, Trump claims that he has the power to declassify documents and that he has declassified them. Julie, what's the legitimacy of these claims? Uh, It doesn't matter. Uh, actually, for what the Justice Department is, the specific crimes that they are looking at, it doesn't matter whether or not they're classified. So this has been sort of a diversion. I mean, obviously, it's important. And obviously, if these were classified documents that were not properly kept and perhaps have been shared with others, there has been damage to U.S. security. But it's not uh, it's not a defense for this particular crime. Mary, what insight does this exchange give us into how these hearings might go? Well, I think that it's always been a little bit of a mystery as to why the Trump team wanted this judge, Judge Deary, to be the special master, because he has a reputation as a real straight shooter. And I think you see that in this exchange, where he's saying to the Trump team, listen, I am going to ask you to show your work here, to prove your point. And I think we're going to see that over and over again. We saw that throughout the week with the judge, you know, basically saying, you got to get through this faster. And, you know, I really need you to prove this point and that point about the declassification. That hasn't changed what Trump himself is saying. You know, he went on Fox News and he said, I have the I have the power to declassify things just by thinking about it. So he's still saying what he's saying. But the question is really going to be, what do his lawyers say in court? Because that's where it really matters. Mike tweeted us, well, the various prosecutions and legal attacks facing President Trump impact how future presidents are treated after leaving office. Josh? You know, I think that they, I mean, Trump is such an outlier when it comes to all of this stuff that I, I do think that um, people are hoping that it that it's not going to, they're never going to have to have these challenges again. But I do think that Congress uh, is moving towards 
changing election laws, uh, changing laws about the, the lawful transfer of power, uh, of holding former presidents to account. Uh, the National Archives and Records Administration is working to, um, to improve and bolster the way that it, it controls documents like this to make sure that this doesn't happen again. But again, the system is designed uh, for a president that sort of stays within the guardrails of, of the, the rule of law. So um, I think that, you know, that constitutional scholars, Congress, congressional lawmakers, uh, investigators are all hoping that they don't have to go through this again. But I think they're all trying to bolster the defenses to make sure it doesn't happen again, including in the upcoming midterms and, and the 2024 election, of course. Julie, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to make a point that sort of ties these things together. I just happened to be driving home from a long distance, listen to the Tish James press conference. Um, and I also was driving home from almost that same place when the Mueller report came out. Mm. And, you know, most of these cases against Trump, including both impeachments, have been really complicated and very hard for the average person to figure out what is he accused of doing wrong and what is the law. And, you know, the thing about the, the Tish James lawsuit is that it's pretty easy to understand. He lied about basically the value of his real estate, uh, made it look more expensive when it helped him and made it look less expensive when it came time to pay taxes. That was really simple. And I think that may end up having some, you know, uh, that may resound with the public more than some of these other cases, which have been really, really tied up in, you know, obscure national security issues. Well, let's turn now to the January 6th hearings. On Wednesday, Virginia Jenny Thomas, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, reached an agreement with the committee to testify. The committee's been trying to secure testimony from Thomas for several months. This comes after evidence emerged around her possible involvement in efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Mary, why has Thomas agreed to testify now? I mean, I, I think it just reached a point of no return. There were too many questions about what she knew, when she knew it, and how she was connected with January 6th. There was this reporting in the Washington Post that Ginny Thomas, of course, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, had sent emails to people in Arizona and Wisconsin urging them to reconsider the 2020 election. So really using her position of privilege to push for an outcome. You know, she was at January 6th. There were text messages that she sent to Mark Meadows that came out where she was talking about releasing the Kraken. So there was just so much there that I think the committee really couldn't avoid having her come in to be questioned. Well, and Josh, briefly, just the significance of having a sitting Supreme Court justice's wife testifying before this committee investigating an attempted insurrection. Right. Well, uh, Janet, this is a huge uh, deal. Uh, I mean, Chairman Benny Thompson has been working toward this agreement for more than probably a year, I think. And, you know, it's her her position as a right-wing activist and lobbyist that they really want to talk to her about her relationships with with Kevin McCarthy, with John Eastman, a lot of the key players in this. She seems to be at the center of a lot of these operations. And of course, th this is going to be sworn testimony. So, you know, is she, I, I think that she will be in somewhat of a, a delicate position in terms of how she has to answer. But one of the big questions here is, will we ever get to a point based on what Ginny Thomas says or what the investigators find where, where Clarence Thomas recuses himself from Supreme Court cases involving this? A lot of these issues are going to end up in the Supreme Court, and I think Trump is hoping that they do because he helped put a majority of conservative judges, justices on the court. And, uh, you know, what Thomas testifies to and what investigators find out uh, about what her involvement was with John Eastman and with Kevin McCarthy, the House 
uh, minority leader and others uh, is going to be hugely important. I mean, there's one thing that was important uh, that came up in some of the reporting was that Eastman messaged a pro-Trump lawyer claiming to have insight into what he called a heated fight, unquote, between Supreme Court justices over whether to hear an election case. And it's unknown how Eastman would have had that information. But, you know, he is fairly close with Jenny Thomas. So the presumption is that she is sharing some of her private conversations with the Supreme Court justice, who happens to be her husband, with people that are key players in a lot of these investigations. So I I think that she, um, it's going to be really interesting to hear what she is asked and what she answers and whether uh, the details of that testimony will come out. I suspect that it will in the next uh, January 6th committee hearing, which is scheduled for later this month. Mary, what do you think this means for public perception of the Supreme Court as a whole? Well, public perception of the Supreme Court is already basically at rock bottom. So this just is more fuel on that fire. And I really, I just want to emphasize what Josh was saying, where we already have a case from back in January where Clarence Thomas was the lone dissent when Trump sought to block the release of some documents relating to January 6th. And so what this testimony really does is it raises this question, this ethical question of blocking those documents for Clarence Thomas was that partially about protecting his wife and we don't know but it just it doesn't look great and it already doesn't look great at the Supreme Court we'll continue our discussion of the week's biggest stories after the break you're listening to the news roundup Let's move on to another story. Texas Sheriff Javier Salazar in Bear County has formally opened an investigation against the individuals he says may have, quote, lured and transported, unquote, 48 Venezuelan migrants from the Migrant Resource Center in San Antonio, Texas, to Martha's Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis backed sending the migrants north as part of a strategy by southern border states to call national attention to federal immigration policy. Now, Sheriff Salazar spoke to the PBS. NewsHour on Wednesday and answered questions about who could be facing criminal charges for the flight. I mean, I think to say that, that Governor DeSantis is a suspect is a, is a long stretch. What my concern is and what I have authority of is my corner of the world, which is Bear County. My concern is, did somebody with feet planted on Bear County soil break the law or not? At present, we're being told that that's a distinct possibility by these folks speaking to us through their attorneys. But very soon, we'll have the opportunity to talk directly to them find out exactly what they were told and, and what was done with them and to them while they were here in Bear County, and then we make that determination. Governor Ron DeSantis paid $615,000 in Florida taxpayer money to relocate the 50 Venezuelan migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, and it comes from the $12 million pot of funds in Florida's Department of Transportation to, quote, relocate unauthorized aliens from the state, and that comes from the Tallahassee Democrat. Julie, what is the investigation into transporting these asylum seekers entail? Well, basically, whether or not they were falsely uh, coerced into going to Martha's Vineyard. They were promised all kinds of things, uh, help with jobs, shelter, food, uh, and that we're, it's still unclear who the, the this unidentified or unpurely identified woman was who promised them all these things. Um, if they would go to Martha's Vineyard, of course, they got there and the place they were sent turned out to be a parking lot. 
So uh, there's there's a lot of still unanswered questions about this. I mean, it was clearly part of this political stunt that's been going on. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been busing um, migrants to northern cities, including Washington, D.C., for the last several weeks, although the difference seems to be that those people have been told where they are going and are going voluntarily. It's not clear in this case if these people were coerced. Well, DeSantis spoke on Fox News Monday night about the reasons why he paid for the flight. Sean, there are jobs available in Martha's Vineyard. There is lodging available in Martha's Vineyard. Had they lived up to their what they build themselves at as a sanctuary jurisdiction, they could have absorbed those people without a problem. But here's the thing. They said they didn't have housing. They said they couldn't accommodate. Like, let's just say that's true for a minute. Well, what does that mean for these poor towns in Texas? So Sheriff Salazar is is investigating whether there are criminal charges involved with this flight. But a civil rights law firm representing the Venezuelan migrants filed a civil suit against Governor DeSantis on Tuesday. The group Lawyers for Civil Rights says the migrants were lied to about their destination and that no warning was given to locals in Martha's Vineyard to provide food or shelter. Josh, what could the impact of this lawsuit be for Governor DeSantis and governors of other states involved in the same tactics? You know, it's hard to tell, Jen, about that. I mean, in, it, it, there's this odd effect, and this has been the case for years now, where they do where they do something that's so outlandish that it offends uh, most of the people in the United States, or many of the people. Uh, it actually appeals to their base and makes them even stronger politically. So uh, while it's hard to tell what's going to happen with that, uh, you know, you do see some other people piling on. I think that there's been some governors in other states that are at least supporting this this uh, this notion of of moving people from one place to another. You know, activists and critics are saying that this is actually a, a form of human trafficking, even though these people aren't being moved someplace specifically so that the traffickers can benefit from what they're doing. You know, you can't just take people and just move them by false premise from one place to another, disrupt them, even if they are, uh, you know, undocumented uh, immigrants. It, that's that's something that's against the law in the United States. And so, you know, it remains to be seen how aggressive the investigation is going to be, uh, whether uh, congressional uh, lawmakers in, in Massachusetts and other states are going to be looking into this. Uh, one thing that I thought that's worth noting is that Sheriff Salazar um, has gone public with this. He said on Twitter that he's officially opened a criminal investigation against the individuals who lured and transported the 48 migrants. Uh, and he said, and this is noteworthy, if you or someone you know has been impacted, please email us. So they are taking a pretty aggressive approach to this, and they're trying to find people that might be witnesses, might be victims. So you know, it, it remains to be seen what the political fallout will be, but it's going to be significant, I think. Well, in the nation's capital, there's a looming deadline next week to pass a budget preventing a government shutdown. The first, I'm telling you, it's just like deja vu all over again. The federal government's fiscal year ends September 30th, and there's a flight underway over environmental permitting for energy projects. Julie, what's at the core of these Senate negotiations? Well, the core of these Senate negotiations uh, is Senator Joe Manchin. He's been at the core of all of these negotiations, This is something that was promised to him in exchange for his vote on the Inflation Reduction Act, the bill, the the budget bill that uh, Congress passed back in August, which seems so many weeks ago 
now. Um, and this obviously, uh, Congress needs to do something to keep government open after October 1st. We expect that they'll do something short term because that's what Congress normally does. And in the olden days, when I started covering Congress, they would pass the annual appropriations bills before October 1st, and they would go for an entire year, and we would debate them again the next year. I can't remember the last time we had full year appropriations. Um, so they'll extend it for a few weeks or a few months or, you know, while they continue to, to do these negotiations. Obviously, you know, Senator Manchin is is unhappy and trying to push on, you know, uh, this what he said he was promised. The administration is supporting Senator Manchin because that was part of their deal, particularly some liberal Democrats in the House are pushing back. And they'll obviously resolve some of this before the first of the year, because at least the Democrats don't seem to want to shut the government down. But it probably won't happen until late on September 30th. Well, the House did pass significant legislation on Wednesday to further protect federal elections. The Electoral Count Act passed by a narrow margin on Wednesday and was drafted in response to the January 6th insurrection. Mary, briefly, what does this legislation do? It basically makes it harder for January 6th to repeat itself. It does things like confirms that the vice president has only a ceremonial role in certifying the presidential election. So no more demands that someone like Mike Pence, quote unquote, do his duty and keep his, bo- his boss in office. It also lays out there the role of people in Congress and what their role is when they're certifying the election. And this is a corrective because, you know, there has been this law, the Electoral Count Act, that basically had these holes in it. And critics say that's what Trump exploited on January 6th. The fact that just one or two Congress people can stand up and sort of raise their issues about the electoral count. So this is what it seeks to do, and now it goes to the Senate. So we'll see where it goes from here. On Wednesday, Hurricane Fiona made landfall in Puerto Rico this week. One million people were without power, nearly half a million without water. And this comes almost exactly five years after Hurricane Maria devastated the island. Mary, first, what is the situation in Puerto Rico right now? Well, lots of people still without power. But I have to say, you know, I did a show on this this weekend, and I talked to a journalist who is an energy reporter but also happens to have relatives who are Puerto Rican. And her point was really like, this is just a little normal in Puerto Rico at this point. The power system is so fragile. It was always fragile, but Hurricane Maria really knocked it down, and it hasn't fully recovered. So she made this point that, the power went out before the storm even made landfall. And I think that's so important to remember that we have left Puerto Rico so incredibly vulnerable at this time. And, you know, it's just... It's it's the storm, but it's also not the storm. It's also the choices that have been made leading up to the storm. Well, here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Tuesday speaking about the state of the power grid in Puerto Rico. Instead of getting power to the people, instead of making it a resilient grid, a locally-based grid, they're busy fighting with each other. Puerto Rico is often referred to as New York's sixth borough. Josh, what is Senator Schumer asking for to help Puerto Rico? Well, I think he wants more funding, but he also wants more oversight over this. I mean, you, you may recall that, you know, Puerto Rico's power grid has been struggling for five, at least five years after Hurricane Maria. That was the one uh, that Trump famously, you know, kind of tried to ignore uh, Puerto Rico and the funding for. But, um, you know, this is this is a capacity building issue. This is something that's going to be very expensive to fix. 
you have to basically start um, from scratch almost and restore, uh, you know, the capacity there. Um, but, you know, Puerto Rico is not alone in it. I mean, um, you know, Texas had problems with its power grid after some storms there and with climate change uh, creating more and more of these, you know, wild weather changes and, and, and super storms, as it were, it's going to be a problem. So I think what, what, what Schumer's trying to do, at least for now, is get, get some uh, um, upgrades to the system to take a look at whether it needs to be replaced or restored uh, and, and how much money it's going to cost and what they can do immediately to help restore power. Well, Mary, right now, how is the federal government stepping in to help recovery efforts? Well, the president just issued a major disaster declaration on Wednesday, which is going to free up some funds for the island. But also, I think it'll be interesting to see in the coming days the role of FEMA and how FEMA thinks of their role in the wake of this storm. They've really been shifting, especially after Maria, to thinking about building resilience in Puerto Rico and have set aside billions of dollars to do that, which means not just building back to where things were, but kind of rethinking how how power works on the island in general. So there's this question now of, will that mean, for instance, building solar infrastructure for people, which would, of course, take them off the grid and not make them reliant on, you know, right now the power comes from the southern part of the island and is sort of strung across to the north side of the island. That obviously creates a vulnerability. If everyone had solar power, it would be quite different, obviously. So I'm going to be keeping my eye on what some what an organization like FEMA is really saying. Like, are we going to be talking about building back in a much more resilient way? And what does that look like? Well, and, and just to be clear, Mary, what are the people of Puerto Rico saying they want and need? <laughs> I mean, the issue is that the power issue becomes twisted up in so many other things that are happening in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a place that does not have the benefit of statehood. It does not have the benefit of independence. And so that creates a whole other meta conversation over the power conversation. I think what the people in Puerto Rico want is reliable energy. After Maria, there was this huge, huge group of people who just left the island because they didn't have reliable energy and reliable education and reliable health care, all that comes along with that. 12% of the island. I think the people there just want that to stop happening. It's the News Roundup. We'll be back with some of the week's biggest headlines in just a moment. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's move on to some economic news. But first, this quick question from Fight Back with Facts, who tweets, if Jenny Thomas agrees to be questioned, do we know if they are restricted on what they can ask her? What's the point of bringing her in if they can't ask questions that get to the bottom of it? Mary? Oh, good question. I actually kind of want to know what Josh has to say about this, because I'm not sure if they're restricted. I sort of assume they have terms that they set ahead of time, though. Josh, what can you add? You know, I it, that that stuff is all you know top secret, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word. But uh, I'm sure that there's been negotiations going on. She's got a good team of lawyers with her. But you know, I don't think that the committee would agree to this. I know Benny Thompson w- wouldn't agree to it, and neither would Liz Cheney. I think uh, if if it wasn't pretty open in terms of what they could ask her about. The the big question, of course, will be what she answers. I mean, she may, um, you know, I don't, I doubt that she'll, you know 
basically say, you know, that I cite the Fifth Amendment and not talk, but I think that she'll try to talk her way around these issues. Uh, she is pretty uh, adroit, I think, in terms of uh, skirting some of the more fundamental issues. But the big questions are, you know, what are connections to people like John Eastman and others who were involved in what essentially was an attempt to overthrow a, a legitimately elected pr president of the United States? So I, I'm hoping that it's going to be very long hearing some of these have gone, you know, six, seven, even eight hours long, uh, and that they get a lot of information from her, uh, and that we somehow can get in some form or fashion, what she said. And I do think that that's going to be a centerpiece of the, the upcoming hearing that they have. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> well, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by another three quarters of a percentage point for the third con consecutive time. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says more right rate Rate hikes, that's what I'm looking for, could be coming. He says it's an aggressive move to tackle inflation. Over coming months, we will be looking for compelling evidence that inflation is moving down, consistent with inflation returning to 2%. We anticipate that ongoing increases in the target range for the federal funds rate will be appropriate. The pace of those increases will continue to depend on the incoming data and the evolving outlook for the economy. With today's action, we have raised interest rates by three percentage points this year. At some point, as the stance of monetary policy tightens further, it will become appropriate to slow the pace of increases while we assess how our cumulative policy adjustments are affecting the economy and inflation. Mary, what can you tell us about the effects this may have? Well, I mean, <laughs> the effects it may have, I mean, we're already seeing effects on housing. And Jerome Powell alluded to that when he made this announcement because you know, the rates on mortgages are going up. And so you're seeing prices cool off a little bit, but still it's very hard if you want to buy a house right now. So that's, I think, a big thing people are watching. But I think this decision was really cemented because you heard Powell say there, you know, we want to get inflation back to 2%. But just a week ago, we saw it's nowhere near that. You know, prices rose 8.3% instead of 2%. And that's as as gas and used cars, which have been driving inflation, those costs are coming down, but the inflation is still going up. And so it really put the Fed in this spot where they had to do something big, and they did it. Julie, what, what would you like to add? I think there are still, you know, a lot of supply chain issues. Um, we're also starting to see health inflation come back. For the first time in several years, years health inflation uh, had been fairly tame. And I think what happened during the uh, pandemic is that people stopped using health care. Uh, and then they all sort of went back in droves. Uh, plus, we've had this labor shortage. So the, those input costs have gone up, plus the supply chain issues. So it's cost, you know, health care uh, providers more to get the things that they need. Uh, and now health insurance is going to go up and that starts its own inflationary spiral. Well, let's turn to another story this week. Two and a half years, we're still talking about the pandemic, but the messaging has changed. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. That was President Biden speaking to 60 Minutes. His comments seemed to catch his staff off guard and caused backlash from several U.S. public health officials. Well, on Thursday, the Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, said they were not ready to declare an end to the pandemic. Over the past two weeks, I have said that pandemic is not over, but the end 
is inside. Both are true. Being able to see the end does not mean we're at the end. Yes, we're in a better position, significantly better position than we have ever been. Julie, first of all, why is messaging so important in this stage of the pandemic? Because people really don't understand where we are, what kind of protections they should be taking for themselves and their family. This was kind of unfortunate timing for the president. He was talking, you know, they were at the Detroit Auto Show, and he was pointing out that people weren't wearing masks there. Um, But this is a time when the administration is trying to urge people to go out and get these new bivalent boosters. Uh, This is a time when the administration is trying to get Congress to provide some more money, uh, which is one of the things that's going to be feeding into health inflation if people who haven't had to pay for tests and and vaccines suddenly have to start paying for them, for them because the government has been paying for them. Um, so the, the timing is a little bit off, but people really don't know what to think. And I think that was the difficulty here is that we don't, the messaging has been difficult all along, but now we're at a really important moment, as Dr. Tedros points out, in the pandemic where we're going to, where it's going to go from being all-encompassing to still being a problem that we need to pay attention to. And they don't have very good messaging for that yet, as we've seen this week. While our listeners and experts shared their opinions on President Biden's comments and also on how some of the messaging matches up with the data we're seeing around COVID. And you can find that in our latest vaccination nation at the1a.org. We'll also tweet out a link to that show at 1A. How is the White House responding to the backlash, Julie? Um, Well, of course, they were trying to sort of walk back. They didn't want to fully walk back the president. They didn't want to say the president misspoke, but they were saying, well, you know, look how far we've come. They basically were using the president's comment to say, look at what we've managed to do um, and look at how much better things are. And those things are both true, but it's also true that 300 to 400 people a day are still dying. Uh, if that were a flu season, that would we would all be having, you know, seeing the headlines about what a terrible flu season it was. Just because it's better than it was doesn't mean that it's good yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difference difficulty that they are having with this. Just want to point out that Vaccination Nation also has some great advice on risk management, the latest information on boosters. Again, find it at the 1A.org. Now, the Department of Justice has charged 48 people in Minnesota for what they're calling a, quote, brazen scheme of staggering proportions, unquote. Authorities say it's the largest scheme of COVID-19 fraud with allegations that the defendant stole at least $250 million that was supposed to go towards feeding low-income children. Mary, tell us more about this case. So the people charged in the scheme, they're accused of creating companies that were claiming to offer free food to children across Minnesota, and then they sought reimbursement for all that, and they just took the money. And so the way this happened is that during the pandemic, uh, the government freed up funding for kids to get meals. And so all of a sudden, you didn't need to be a school, like nonprofit restaurants could participate. So the idea here is that what happened is that you'd have a small storefront restaurant that someone would come in and say, hey, like, I want to act as you essentially to fill out this form of the government and get money. And, you know, the details are just really bad that, you know, the U.S. attorney is alleging that what the defendants did here is they they made up names for hungry children. They used an online random name generator, which it just really galls at you. It's the kind of thing where it's like when the government releases a fire hose of money, this kind of thing is going to happen. It happens every time this happens. But the details here are just pretty 
shocking. Well, last month, President Biden signed bills that would crack down on pandemic fraud cases. So, Julie, what will you be watching in the coming months as the White House tries to respond to just the issue Mary laid out there? Well, that's why we have the Justice Department and, and, you know, uh, local prosecutors that this, you know, as Mary says, this is what happens when the when the government puts out large amounts of money that it wants to get out quickly. It becomes bait for people who would commit fraud. It's just sort of the unfortunate side effect of trying to do things fast. We saw this with the PPP loans. We're seeing it now. There's a big story about um, unemployment fraud that, you know, at any time you make it easier for people to get money, you make it easier for people who will get money wrongly. Um, and then you have have to go back behind and try to, to clean it up and uh, sort of get some of that money back. And that's what the government is busy doing right now. I want to turn back to a question we got about the migrants story we talked about earlier. Greg tweeted us, it would be interesting to find out if any of the money used to transport migrants to the north originally came from a federal source. Josh, would that matter? Well, I think it would matter in terms of what crimes you charge them with, because I do think they're, they are looking at these as criminal violations. Right now, it seems like it's more a lawmaker from Massachusetts and a sheriff in Texas that are looking at this. But if federal crimes are involved, then you get the FBI investigating it, potentially Homeland Security's uh, investigations are investigating it too. Uh, and it brings the potential uh, legal culpability and liability and possible sentences to it to an even higher level if they decide to do that. Um, you know, the big question is what, what was their intent when they did this? Uh, what was the harm done and what can they prove? So um, I do think that they are investigating this. I think they need to find this mysterious woman who, you know, was, wasn't, you know, roping these people in, uh, get more details. But I think a federal case would be significant. Yeah, I agree. Let's circle back one more time to the January 6th hearings and the problems plaguing the former president. Mike tweeted us, why would Mrs. Thomas answer any questions from the January 6th committee? There's no advantage to her to risk her answers being used to implicate her. Julie, what do you think? I've had, I've wondered that exact thing when I saw that she'd agreed to, to go and speak to them. I'm not sure what she has to gain from it. Um, it may just be that the pressure has gotten so big that she doesn't want to look like she's, you know, hiding from them. But yeah, it's not... I'm I think we're waiting to see what exactly she will say and how much useful information they will get from her. The fact that she's agreed to come talk to them doesn't necessarily mean she's going to go and tell them everything she knows. Mary, your thoughts? I agree with Julie. I mean, you just have to remember that there are a bunch of people who have testified who have said things <laughs> like, I'm taking the fifth here, taking the fifth. And so we don't know what she's going to say or how much she's going to say. And we'll just have to wait and see. Well, the committee returns after a month-long break on Wednesday. Josh, what new testimony or evidence will you be looking out for? Uh, you know, we don't know yet. But before we move to that, I mean, one thing I would add about Jenny Thomas is I don't think that this is any benevolent act on her part. My guess is, and I've covered the hearings extensively and I've covered federal law enforcement, is that they were going to subpoena her if she didn't do it. And they basically told her, look, you, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the mm -hmm. hard way. And that she finally realized that she, she sort of has to do it and that it looks better for her to do it this way voluntarily than to be subpoenaed for it. In terms of the hearing... Well, and, and, um, one, you know, and one thing, Josh, does it also look better for, for her husband, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas? Right, right. I mean, the, he's probably in duck and cover mode on this. But, um, you know, to, to any normal observer, it would seem like t Thomas has to recuse himself from these cases, but he's maintained that he uh, doesn't have to and, is, and isn't going to, and he's got some support 
you know, by among Republicans and even people on the Supreme Court. So, you know, the question of what happens next, a lot of that will hinge on what she says to the committee. And I'm sure that this is something that if they don't bring it out at this next hearing, which they say is going to be their last, it will leak out in some form so that people do find out what's happening. So, uh, you know, we don't know who they're going to be bringing in as witnesses yet. They usually keep that pretty close to the vest. Often we find out the day before uh, or even sometimes the morning before. I do know that they have been interviewing a lot of people and getting a lot of good information and, um, and working with the Justice Department, at least sharing information. So, I'm really looking forward to the hearing to see what happens. Uh, and even more than that, I'm really looking forward to their final report, which should be out sometime this year to find out what they what they found about, you know, the insurrection and, and the events leading up to it. Well, Mary, this could be the last hearing for the special committee. How do you see the investigation going from here with the midterms around the corner? Well, I mean, the question is whether the DOJ takes up what Congress is showing them and how deeply, right? I mean, what I'm and the other thing I'll say that I'm going to be watching for during the committee hearing is Liz Cheney has been such a major part of these hearings. She was just defeated in her primary. So how does that shift the energy in the room? And, you know, what does it mean for how these hearings go down? Does she change her stance at all? I don't think that she will, but I am kind of curious. Well, Justin, in the next uh, 30 seconds or so, I'd love to hear from each of you a story you're following or a story you think didn't get enough attention this week. Julie? Well, um, I am still looking, you know, at what's going to happen with the COVID funding going forward, whether, you know, the the president's uh, sort of, I don't know whether I would call it a gaffe, but whether the president's comment the pandemic is over is going to have some impact on whether or not the administration gets the funds that it says it needs to go forward. Josh, in just a sentence or two. Trump's embrace of QAnon and why that's a national security threat to the United States. Well, you've got to come back and talk to us about that. Mary, you get the last word here. I mean, the culture wars just keep rolling on. And I feel like you're seeing so many state level actions against folks who identify as trans. I just feel like this is going to keep rolling right into the midterms. We were here this week with Mary Harris, host and managing editor of What Next? That's Slate's daily news podcast. Josh Meyer, he's security correspondent at USA Today. And Julie Rovner, chief Washington correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Thanks to you all. We'll be back to discuss some of the biggest headlines from around the globe in just a moment. This is 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and it's time for the global edition of the News Roundup. Voting is underway in parts of Ukraine, but these elections are not being run by Ukraine. It's the latest move by Russia's president to salvage something from a war that hasn't gone as planned. And this week, Vladimir Putin raised the stakes in a big way. We'll talk about that and catch up with some other big stories overseas. Joining us for the international edition of the Roundup this week, Vivian Salama. Vivian is a national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal and author of The Long Journey Home. That's a children's book about a young refugee. Vivian, welcome back. Thanks for having me. On the line from the Chinese capital, David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. David, thanks for joining us. Hello. And here in studio, we have Sean Carberry. Sean is the managing editor at National Defense Magazine and former Kabul correspondent for NPR. Sean, it's great to have you in. Great to be here, Jen. Well, let's start with elections being held in four occupied regions of Ukraine. They've been called self-styled referendums on joining Russia. Vivian, what does Russia want? Well, I mean, throughout this entire uh, seven-month now campaign, this uh, President Vladimir Putin has asserted essentially that um, he is trying to uh, liberate uh, parts of 
Russia, what he believes to be genuine, legitimate parts of Russia, after decades-long Western plot to basically break his country up. And so he has justified first his invasion, which began in February, uh, uh, with that premise in mind, but then more recently now pushing toward a referendum, having elections to try to legitimize that and kind of solidify his gains. And so this is something that the U.S. has worn now for, for months was probably part of the playbook is that he would first try to grab land and then he would hold elections to try to justify it. And so we're seeing that now. Of course, it fell just as uh, world leaders were gathering at the UN this week, which was probably not a coincidence. Uh, and that was, you know, a sign that he was really trying to send a message. Well, President Biden joined with others to call these elections a sham. Here's some of what he told world leaders who met earlier this week, as you said, Vivian, in New York at the UN. This war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple. And Ukraine's right to exist as a people, whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever you believe, that should make your blood run cold. Sean, other than denounce these elections as a sham, what can the U.S. and those who oppose the war do about them? Well, that's that's the problem. There's, there's little leverage uh, because we've seen this play out before. In 2014, Putin used the exact same tactic in Crimea. Uh, held a forced referendum uh, that was not at all recognized. It was denounced as illegal by international law, uh, and yet he carried forward and annexed Crimea. And so he's using the exact same playbook on a much larger scale this time around. And given the fact that he didn't uh, suffer any consequences the last time, uh, it's hard to see what can be done beyond uh, you know, continuing to support Ukraine in the fight. Obviously, the other piece of this, what's concerning is the fact that Russia has already announced that this will basically be Russian territory that they will defend with nuclear weapons and calling that sovereign territory. So that gets now into a question of if Ukraine with U.S. support fights to liberate that territory, that's an invasion of Russia by Russia's standards and ups the ante into very dangerous territory. President Biden's speech to the U.N. General Assembly came just hours after a televised address by President Putin. That's when he announced his plan to mobilize up to 300,000 reserves to help with the war effort. And he went further. I want to remind those who allow themselves such statements about Russia that our country also has a variety of weapons of destruction. And if the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will, without question, use all the means at our disposal to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff. David, what do you read both into that threat and his move to call up 300,000 additional troops? Well, the threat is clearly you have to take it very seriously. He's proved in the past that every time people said he, you know, he'd be crazy to do that, then he did that. So we can't just dismiss out of hand the idea that he might be mad enough to use even small nuclear devices. That said, um, he has made nuclear threats before and they have just been threats. And also, Sean's very good point about, you know, the danger that this is now going to be declared Russian territory. And so we saw Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian uh, pr uh, president and prime minister, who's now this kind of uber hawk, saying that uh, this was now going to be self-defense if you attack these areas. I mean, remember that Crimea 
um, has been attacked by Ukrainians. Uh, they've, you know, they've launched strikes on things like air bases, naval bases in Crimea, and the Russians didn't treat that as an attack on Russia. So I think there's a bit of wriggle room there. But the, the bottom line is that we are seeing an absolutely enormous backlash against Vladimir Putin's even partial mobilization. And that's because it goes to the heart of the lie he's been peddling to his people since the beginning of this war seven months ago, which is that it's not even a war. In fact, you can be sent to prison in Russia for calling it a war. It's a special military operation. It's essentially going to be painless. It's happening a long way away. You've seen tremendous efforts in places like Moscow to make life feel as normal as possible. But now people's kids, people's husbands are getting call-up papers. We're seeing really brutal behavior where incredibly brave Russians protesting in cities like Moscow, but really all over the country. When they get arrested, you get given a summons to go straight into the military. We've even seen independent journalists covering the protests, being arrested, given military call-up papers to punish them. And so this is an extraordinarily kind of desperate move. And I think it was fascinating. You saw Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor at the United Nations General Assembly, say that Putin is misguided and he has underestimated the situation and he's desperate. And this is something he clearly wouldn't have wanted to do because he was trying to spare his people the idea that there were real costs to this military adventure. Vivian, tell us a little more about the reaction to these latest moves by Putin within Russia. It's been pretty extraordinary, just besides these protests that we've seen in cities throughout the the country. And I want to emphasize that, you know, they're large protests and they're always significant, but they weren't mass, mass protests by any stretch. They were, you know, more in the thousands than the tens of thousands, but still very significant given the way the Russian government controls the country. And then you've seen... uh, signs of exodus, signs of panic, where uh, flights have been booking up for days upon end. Um, we've seen flight trackers showing these planes sort of leaving in, in in a mad rush that are filled completely with passengers, mostly men of conscription age, terrified of the, the potential of being called up. Also, uh, lines of cars at the land borders uh, as well. And so you're seeing this sense, this growing sense of panic within the population that is so significant. Um, Google even put out um, a trends graph a couple of days ago where it showed that um, hours after President Putin declared uh, this new call-up, um, there was a spike in searches for how to break an arm in Russia, mm. because p- uh, presumably because so many people were so afraid of being uh, called to serve. And President Putin has already alluded to the fact that the the campaign in Ukraine is not going as well as he might have necessarily liked. And so they need more men to support those f- soldiers that are going in there already. But obviously a sense of panic within the population. And that goes to David's point about possibly underscoring some of the cracks now in Putin's control um, on this situation and just that grip that he has on the messaging about what this war is all about. Well, the timing of this escalation by one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council did not go unnoticed. America's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, called Russia's nuclear threats reckless and called out the threat Putin presents to the wider world. The very international order that we have gathered here to uphold is being shredded before our eyes. We cannot, we will not allow President Putin to get away with it. I just want to read the preamble to the UN Charter. Again, it was signed in 1945, and it starts with, to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind. David, how 
does Russia still get to be a member of, of this very powerful UN Security Council when it's so blatantly at odds with the UN's charter? So this is the dilemma that the UN has faced since its founding, which is that if they looked at the previous failure of the kind of the precursor of the UN, uh, the League of Nations, and one of the problems there was that big powers decided that they didn't want to be bound by it, and so they walked out. And so in order to prevent the world's great powers from walking away from the table and just going it alone, the five great powers uh, were given a permanent seat at the Security Council, and that comes with a veto. And you're seeing some really interesting fights where the French, uh, now joined by the British, are saying when it comes to things like war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, it should be basically we should, the P5 members, those permanent members, should rule out using their veto. Uh, the Americans are a little bit cagey because the Americans, you know, don't like to be uh, banned too much. They say it should be exceptional to use the veto. China and Russia, the last two members, uh, permanent members of the Security Council, they are willing to use their vetoes to defend themselves. I am sitting here in China in a country that claims to be neutral and peace-loving and to not take a view on Ukraine, but is busy pumping out pro-Russian propaganda and echoing those Russian talking points that this war is a war of self-defense, that America and NATO caused this war in Ukraine and that Russia has no choice because it's been forced into a corner. And so you see a divide right down the middle of the international community. But if you kick Russia out, then you kind of break the UN. And so that's the dilemma we've always faced. Sean, we, we've talked about these 300,000 troops. Uh, President Vladimir Putin is, is talking about calling up. Give us a gut check on what that means practically. Yeah, on paper, that's it's a big number. It sounds imposing. But if you look at the Russian military structure, their reserves are not at all like America's reserve. It's not an organized, persistently trained force. You have a mix of retired soldiers and uh, former conscripts. So Russia has this hybrid system where they have professional soldiers. They also draft somewhere around a quarter of a million people a year. They get some training. They serve for a year. Then they end up in the reserves. Estimates are that really maybe 5,000 of the reserves are really trained and capable um, but then there's questions about the equipment um, and the time it's going to take to get people uh, ready to, to deploy into a fight. Uh, a few days ago, I was able to speak with a deputy defense minister from Ukraine, and he noted that Russia lost a lot of senior officers and elite forces in the early days. They lost a lot of their modern equipment. So now they're talking about bringing in poorly trained people uh, at lower levels into units with older Soviet equipment. And so even the Ukrainians are not really concerned about this making any significant impact in the short run. Uh, but it's still obviously, and, and as I think David and Vivian both noted, it's causing enormous concern in, in Russia and uh, a sign of, of weakness and that this campaign is not going well. And a lot of these people are, are being referred to by analysts as, as cannon fodder going forward. Kitty asks, if radioactivity from the use of even tactical nuclear weapons by Russia in Ukraine seeps into a NATO country, would this be considered an attack on a NATO country? Vivian? I think that's something that's being debated currently, uh, you know, whether or not uh, something like that would, would qualify as an attack on that country. Certainly it would cause uh, be enormous cause for concern, and you would definitely see some sort of a response, whether or not it would be an isolated response or just kind of trigger a full-blown campaign. I think even NATO is, is trying to 
figure out what that means and what it would look like. And obviously the U.S. very publicly saying that they will take very drastic measures and have a very dramatic uh, response to any use of nuclear weapons. Um, and, and so, and so this, is, this is something that is uh, constantly being discussed. Don't forget also you're seeing shelling around one of Europe's, Europe's largest uh, nuclear plant in Zaporizhia still. It is a cause for huge concern. President Zelensky telling the UN this week that you're not going to find a vaccine for nuclear poisoning, the poisoning that you would suffer if something happens to that plant. And so this is something that is constantly being discussed but the exact nature of a response i guess uh hopefully we will never have to wait and see well before we move on two other moments from the un meeting this week that we should mention first a passionate speech from french president emmanuel macron those who are keeping silent today actually are in a way complicit with the cause of a new imperialism, of a contemporary cynicism, which is trampling over the current order, without which peace is not possible. David, earlier this month, Macron was calling for a dialogue with Russia to end the war in Ukraine. What do you think he was trying to achieve with these remarks? I think that if you talk to the French, and I, I have talked to French officials about this uh, in Paris and in, in Beijing recently, they, they, they get a bit upset when people say that Macron is being soft on Putin. Their view is that you have to keep talking, that why wouldn't you keep talking? And that they've also been asked by uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine to keep talking to Vladimir Putin. I think what is really striking is how hardline the French now sound. And that speech where he was saying those who remain silent today with some complicity I am told by French diplomats that that was an attack on China, that that is the French president calling out the Chinese uh, for pretending to be neutral when they are not. And Macron did not want to have to pick a fight with China over this war. But I think one of the things that Russia is achieving is dividing the world. I think one of the other really unhappy dynamics uh, at the UN General Assembly this week was that you saw a whole lot of countries from Africa, uh, from other emerging areas of the world in the global south, basically complaining that the West, the rich world, is fussed and worried about people in Ukraine because they're basically kind of white people who look like us. And what about children and uh, and those suffering in Africa? What about the wars in the developing world? And I think there is a real sense, and the Russians and the Chinese, among others, are trying to play on that divide, that this is turning into a kind of confrontation between the rich world, the West, and the global South, who think that Ukraine is getting much too much attention. And what about their own many, many serious problems to do with droughts and famines and rising food and fuel prices as a result of this war? Well, the speech to the UN General Assembly by Ukraine's president received a standing ovation. President Zelensky used his time in front of world leaders to lay out what further steps need to be taken against Russia. Punishment that must be in place until the internationally recognized border is restored, until the aggression stops, and until the damages and losses for the war are fully compensated. Now, Vivian, some will hear that as a list of demands from Ukraine. You've spent a fair amount of time reporting on the war from inside that country. What signs are you starting to see that Kyiv believes it has Moscow on the run and and feels more confident about laying out its terms for peace? 
Well, they're very realistic terms, and they're grabbing territory lately um, in very impressive at a very impressive rate, and quite frankly, um, at a rate that many did not expect. Even about a month ago, I was in the Kharkiv region last month, and they were really struggling to get a grip on some of that territory that they had lost. And sure enough, I leave, and a couple of weeks later, it's announced that they have liberated one of the uh, one of the the, the harder cities um, that that that. Uh, uh, that they were fighting for, uh, Izum. Um, and they're, they've got an offensive going uh, in the south as well that has made smaller, more modest gains. But um, they're saying that they have now recaptured in recent weeks territory the size of Connecticut, which is significant. They do believe that... Uh, the HIMARS, the long-range missiles that have been provided by the United States and now some others are starting to provide long-range, have been a game-changer for them. And if you study sort of the battlefield dynamics, you can understand why this is turning into an artillery war and shooting at longer distances is sort of the status quo of how this war has been uh, proceeding. And so it has been a game-changer. And they've also kind of learned how the enemy operates. They believe, in fact, that um, because of the fact that they are a former Soviet, uh, par- par- former part of the Soviet Union, they understand their enemy more than anyone else. They know how they fight and they know how they operate. And what we've been seeing, especially with this call up for reservists from Vladimir Putin, is that there is a sense that the Russians tend to use their soldiers more as a conveyor belt toward death, which is very tragic for these young men who are out there fighting. The Ukrainians have tried to employ much more strategic uh, uh, tactics on the battlefield. They've also, you know, they'll tell you we value our the lives of our soldiers more than the Russian government does. And so you do see a little bit of this um, tilt at obviously with the enormous help of Western governments that continues to pour aid into the country. Without that, they they would have been uh, in a hopeless situation. But we now do see significant gains. Well, let's turn next to some remarkable scenes this week from those protesting in Iran. Thousands have taken to the streets across the country after the death of a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini. NPR and others report Amini died while in the custody of Iran's morality police. They accused her of not wearing her hijab or head covering appropriately. David, what else do we know? Well, this is a major crisis uh, for a government that was already watching its economy uh, collapse. You're seeing uh, soaring prices, people's incomes are plummeting. And we saw this very hardline President Ibrahim Raisi, uh, handpicked effectively by the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei. And he he decided to get tough on things precisely like what women were. He issued a decree on uh, hijab and chastity. Uh, The morality police, these very thuggish, uh, much disliked, uh, certainly in the big cities, uh, police have been really going about this work of kind of cracking down, seem to be set quotas, according to interviews uh, with anonymous members of the morality police that some people have been carrying, um, quotas to arrest as many women as possible. And what is uh, remarkable is the extraordinary bravery of of young women, often, you know, student age undergraduates at Tehran University, but all across Iran, uh, particularly in Kurdish cities, because uh, the young woman, uh, Masa Amini, who died was from Kurdistan, uh, not Kurdistan, she was from the Kurdish area of Iran. And you're seeing uh, reports of people being killed in cities across the Kurdish region of Iran. We're seeing the propaganda machine saying that this is the fault of the Israelis, uh, that the women protesting in the streets are Israeli sort of agents, uh, that it's the fault of America. But there is a real sense of exhaustion uh, in Iran because of all the other problems to do with sanctions. And this comes at precisely the moment when the rest of the world is trying desperately to see if they can sign uh, some sort of revived nuclear arms deal 
uh, with Iran. So for this moment, it's not only tragic for the women of Iran, but it's also a disaster to see Iran kind of retreating into angry isolation. Those protesting in Iran have been calling for global solidarity. Here's Nada al-Nashif, the acting UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Ms. Amini's tragic death and allegations of torture and ill-treatment must be promptly, impartially, and effectively investigated by an independent, competent authority that ensures in particular that her family has access to justice and the truth. Vivian, these protests are widespread. What do you think it says about the wider state of the country and how women are being treated there? Certainly, women's rights uh, have been a source of major uh, major tension throughout the decades uh, that uh, since the Islamic Revolution, and there have been waves of sort of improvements and easing of those restrictions, and then you get a new government and they come back in. And um, this is something that, you know, when you go and you get to know uh, women, especially in Tehran and the other big cities in, in, in Iran, you will see that they are strong, very highly educated. They work, they, they're business women, and they're very active in their societies. And they want their social uh, rights and, and, and restrictions in the country to reflect sort of that empowerment that they have achieved in so many other areas of life. Um, and so this kind of surfaces and allows to surface so much of that tension that has bubbled up. And of course, with Ibrahim Raisi, the uh, the new president in Iran, um, it's, a, it's a challenge to him. And he has obviously responded because he recognizes that seeing these protests in the street um, are not very, uh, are not a, are not going to um, help his, his ability, to try, his, his uh, efforts to try to maintain stability in the country. So he called the father of uh, the woman who was, uh, who was killed, Amini, and he told him, he said, listen, I'm going to uh, launch a full investigation into this. And I feel like this was happened to my daughter, your daughter is my daughter, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. Whether that's an, a sincere effort or not remains to be seen. But he's obviously taking it, at least in the public eye, trying to portray that he's taking it seriously because of the fact that these protests are a wake-up call for the government in Tehran. Let's turn now to another story and remind ourselves about remarks made earlier this week by the president. Joe Biden was asked about Taiwan when he spoke to CBS on Sunday. We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago and that there's a one China policy and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving. We're not encouraging them being independent. We're not. That's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. Sean, first, just how significant are the president's comments here? Well, you have to put in context that the U.S. has been operating under policy dating back to the 1970s when China was in a very different position in terms of its power and standing in the world. And so they came to this sort of ambiguous agreement about the future of Taiwan uh, that sort of allowed everyone to kind of read into it what they needed and allow for a status quo. Um, conditions have been changing. China's been growing as, as a force in the world. It's been getting more assertive about retaking Taiwan. You have a president who has talked about uh, bringing all of the territories back into the fold. So the, the pressure has been turning up on Taiwan. Uh, China's been pulling its its allies away, changing diplomatic relations in the world. So there has been movement in the U.S. in a sense that the, the United States has to up the, the terms a bit. And at least going to a point of saying, yes, the United States will defend Taiwan. You know, it's not going to the point of a treaty 
or anything formal, but there are people on the Hill. There's an effort in the Senate actually to pass a new Taiwan Relations Act that would call Taiwan a major non-NATO ally, increase support, uh, more weapons. Uh, One of the policies is the U.S. provides defensive weapons. Now there's talk about deterrent weapons and changing the policy again from defending Taiwan if something happens to trying to deter. And so that seems to be where kind of the the movement is in the United States. More discussion about deterrent, certainly not pushing beyond that. And obviously, this is still a very delicate balance. Uh, But interestingly, this week, um, a U.S. and Canadian ship sailed through the Taiwan Strait. And China's reaction was very muted compared to past instances. And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, effort to sort of recalibrate the dynamic right now. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people that are, uh, you know, some people in the administration were trying to walk back some of uh, the president's comments, others saying he's not going far enough. David, you're joining us from the Chinese capital. How are the president's comments landing there? Look, it's the fourth time he's said this. So I think what you can say is that the policy that, uh, you know, people agreed had kept the peace of ambiguity, strategic ambiguity, is being changed. Now, why wouldn't it be in the best interest of America to just say, you know, we're going to defend Taiwan no matter what? There were two big reasons that for the longest time it was seen as a bad idea to give that kind of absolute guarantee. Reason one was that the American government did not want to encourage Uh, people in Taiwan to just say, okay, well, then we're going to declare independence and defy China to attack us because we know the Americans are going to turn up. And because there has always been a concern that although the current president of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, is a very moderate, pragmatic, careful figure, there are much more hot-headed members of her own party who would like to defy China and basically say, well, we've got America on our back, so we're going to pick a fight with China. And let's not forget, this would be a war between America and China, it's a war between two nuclear superpowers, which is a terrifying prospect. The other reason for strategic ambiguity is that uh, America basically did promise that it said that you know it wouldn't get involved, it would start reducing arms sales, and China would feel that it was losing Taiwan forever, and you could see a Chinese leadership feeling it had no choice but to drastically accelerate its own plans. So these are these are genuinely difficult questions. It's not just a kind of easy thing to declare that America would turn up. Well, let's stay in the Far East and talk about the fallout from a deadly bus crash that happened in China earlier this week. The bus was carrying 45 residents from the city of Goyang. They were heading to preventative quarantine after being exposed to the coronavirus, and 27 people died as a result of the crash. David, for, for many people, this crash was more than just a, a tragic traffic incident. How are people in China responding? The, the, the basic context is that people are getting really, really tired of zero COVID here. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be a kind of revolt against zero COVID. People, an awful lot of people still get their news from state media that tells them that America is full of people dying of COVID and that China is the only safe place on earth. But it's now nearly three years uh, since this began. And why are there people being driven around in the middle of the night in the bus? Because the way things work here is that a single case of COVID the kind of thing that, you know, you would just kind of decide whether to go to work or not uh, if it happened to you in the States. In China, one case of COVID means that everyone you have lived, you've met, everyone who lives in the same kind of housing complex as you, everyone at your kid's school, they all get put into quarantine immediately. One case can generate hundreds, sometimes thousands of cases of quarantine. Guang is a city of six million people uh, in a rather poor bit of southwestern China. They were trying to control an outbreak which currently has a few hundred 
cases of COVID and they kept promising that they would have no more. And so when they found a case in a, in one part of the city, they basically started driving thousands of people to far away places in the countryside, several hours outside town, so that city officials could say, you see, no cases of COVID now. But the problem is this bus was driving at 2.40 in the morning. Uh, the driver was wearing the full kind of uh, white hazmat suits and he either fell asleep or couldn't see and you had this terrible accident. An amazing response on social media. People really, really angry because they're starting to realize that even if you're not allowed to die of COVID, there are plenty of other ways that this policy is killing people. It's not just things like bus crashes. People are discussing, you know, people have been told, you know, unable to get into hospitals to, to treat heart attacks or to treat miscarriages. Uh, people who have cancer treatment being postponed because the whole country is wrapped up in zero COVID. And people understand it's a very politi a political policy because the Supreme Leader here, Xi Jinping, has made this his signature policy because it's all about the Communist Party cares about keeping Chinese people safe, not like the selfish, decadent Americans and Westerners who let everyone die because they don't love you like the Communist Party loves you. So this is a political campaign, and people are getting really tired of it. Well, speaking of politics, most expect the National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party to give President Xi a third term next month. Are there signs that more parts of the country are willing to speak out, particularly if the party persists in this zero-COVID policy? No, look, this is a, a country that's unbelievably strictly locked down. Uh, you know, even if you sent a text message to your friend uh, saying, you know, I'm sick of this policy. You can get, uh, you can get your account deleted. You can get a warning from your employer, a warning from the police. This is uh, a police state, and in the run-up, as you say, to this incredibly important party meeting, the first, uh, the most important party meeting for a generation, things are as tight as a drum in this uh, in this country. And so, you know, people are tired, people are fed up, but they don't think there's an alternative. They don't think there's going to be a kind of revolt or revolution. And you know, there are all sorts of things going wrong with China right now. If this were a normal country, the leader looking for another term in office would be, you know, on his way out to the exits because the economy is in bad shape. Uh, zero COVID is people are sick of it. There's a whole bunch of stuff. The relationship with uh, America's in terrible shape. Xi Jinping embraced Vladimir Putin, said he was his best friend. Now Vladimir Putin looks like a loser in Ukraine. If this was a normal country with elections, Xi Jinping would be in a world of pain right now. But as best we can tell, and it's elite politics in China, which is a black box. We don't know what's going on. Um, he looks like he's cruising to re-election with a rubber stamp from his party. Well, let's move on to another story. We got this email from Jerry who says, please ask your correspondents about new evidence in the death of Shireen Abu Akleh. Newly released uh, video has convincing evidence that the American-Palestinian journalist was intentionally shot by an Israeli Defense Forces soldier on the 11th of May. Several journalistic human rights groups investigations as well as a UN probe concluded that Israeli forces are responsible for killing Abu Akleh. And this was almost five months ago since Shireen Abu Akleh was killed. This week, her family submitted a complaint to the International Criminal Court at The Hague saying she was deliberately target, targeted. And here's her brother, Anton Abu Akleh. Uh, we know that the Israeli soldiers were able to identify Shireen. She was in full gear, wearing press, uh, both sides, and she was clearly noted as a press. Uh, so any person shooting at the press is intentionally trying to kill and assassinate someone in the field doing their job. Vivian, what's the significance of this ICC complaint? 
So it's obvious that uh, the pressure is building on the Israeli government and the Israeli Defense Forces specifically about this case. Um, Shireen is an American Palestinian, and so uh, her death rocked not only uh, the human rights world and the journalism world, but also, you know, uh, caused a lot of uh, sense of wake up call here in Washington, where the government, you know, which uh, typically tends to uh, let the Israelis um, take matters of what is perceived as their own self defense into their own hands, it was obvious from the get-go that there were concerns that this was not a straightforward situation and that she may have been targeted. And so um, it is something that you see a lot of pressure building. The uh, the family of Shireen Abu Akhle uh, has submitted a formal complaint to the ICC in the hope of investigating um, this new evidence that's been found. Um, and 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 there really is a sense that this is becoming a matter of international significance. I can tell you here in Washington, if you go to the National Press Club, the minute you walk into the doors, um, there's a picture of Shireen there um, honoring her and recognizing her. And so you know throughout all walks of life here, whether it's journalists um, or or um, or government officials, you recognize that this was a woman who was very well respected in our profession, who was doing her job. She had um, the fact that she was a journalist marked plainly on her flak jacket and her helmet. Um, and while she was taking a risk, and we all take risks um, in our jobs, um, the this seemed to have been uh, a, a targeted situation where she was shot despite... In the head, despite the fact that she was wearing a helmet. And so a lot of pushback against um, the Israeli government, which has now said that they're looking into it and they do believe it was the fault of the Israeli uh, defense forces and that it was a mistake, now trying, starting to concede to the fact that this may have been um, a, a poorly executed incident, but obviously raising concerns about the way they carry out their missions, especially in um, the West Bank and any occupied territory. Well, this latest investigation used drone surveys, spatial and audio analysis, geo located video and photos from witnesses. And it also concluded that people who tried to administer first aid to Shireen, who I should say was working for Al Jazeera when she was killed, they were also targeted. Many people argue this is a war crime, but David, is it being investigated as such? Well, one of the problems is the the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Uh, Israel is not a member, uh, says it doesn't recognize the court's authority. Uh, Obviously, uh, the journalist Shireen Abu Akhle, as an American citizen, America doesn't recognize the International Criminal Court either. Um, The ICC did say in 2021 that it has a mandate to investigate war crimes in the occupied uh, Palestinian territories. Uh, But this looks like turning into, tragically, a political and diplomatic kind of standoff, as opposed to an attempt to really work out the truth about what is clearly a very, very disturbing incident, uh, because this is, you know, a very, very important ally of the United States. It is a democracy, and yet its record of uh, the treatment of journalists, uh, particularly in the Palestinian territories, is not uh, good at all. Stephanie had this to say, this week I watched the United States and the Holocaust on PBS, which laid out how Hitler systematically marched on and took over other countries in Europe. When it got to the part about invading the USSR through Ukraine, the similarities to what we're seeing today is striking. And Stephanie there referring to what we were talking about earlier in the hour. But Sean, I mean, does that same image resonate with you? Well, it, this has been described by a lot of people since the the invasion that this is you know something not seen since since that era, and it's it's been alarming to people on the continent. Um, 
And, it, you know, some of the language has, has been used. I mean, obviously you had Putin from the beginning talking about this being a campaign to denazify Ukraine and continuing to use that language, which has sort of oddly played into another incident this week, which is the, the prisoner exchange uh, that, that happened where uh, about 300 prisoners were, were exchanged, about 215 Ukrainians, and then a, a group of Russians. Um, some of the Ukrainians that were released are from the Azov forces, which are Ukrainian forces that have a sordid history of, of you know, Nazi affiliation, white supremacist. It, it's been toned down, supposedly, but it caused this flap in Russia that they released people who actually have been tarnished and, and labeled as Nazis uh, in Ukraine. And that's just been further backlash for what's been a, a you know, horrible week for, for Putin. Hey, Vivian, what do we know about what motivated both sides to agree to this prisoner swap? Uh, well, we know that Turkey and Saudi Arabia were working behind the scenes to really uh, try to get this going. It was a lot of intense haggling and, and went on for quite some time before they were able to do so. Um, one of the interesting notes, I mean, there was a there were a, a number of pro-Moscow Ukrainians that were returned to Russia, but there was also Viktor Medvedev, which was the leader of a banned pro-Russian party who was facing treason charges, and he was somewhat high-profile um, and so they were able to throw that into the mix. Um, so that was partially um, the motivation on the Russian side to get this um, done. Obviously, uh, Russia also working with Saudi Arabia and uh, Turkey on a number of other issues. They still maintain diplomatic ties with each other. And so those two countries were able to probably sway Russia. Don't forget that Russia is now facing crippling sanctions by many governments across the world. And so it's looking for friends where it can get them. And so when the Saudis and the Turks come up to you and say, hey, you know, let's let's work out a deal, the Russians are increasingly in a position where they cannot say no because of the uh, clampdown on their economy that's taking place because of these sanctions. And so that was definitely part of the motivating factor behind it all. But in general, they want uh, they want their people back. They hold a lot of these prisoners of war because they want some of their own back. They use it as a political um, as a political tool. And so, um, you know, what we did see is that a couple of the really high-profile commanders of the uh, Mariupol operations, the Azov Brigade, uh, were not returned. One or two of them were not returned uh, as part of this deal. And so obviously still a lot more work um, to be done on this front. Well, let's turn to another prisoner exchange that happened this week. An American hostage being held by the Taliban is finally free. The news was announced on Monday. Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, who represents Frerich's hometown of Lombard, Illinois, praised those involved in securing his release. Today, the family's prayers have been answered. I want to commend President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, and their teams for never giving up on Mark. His sister Charlene said upon news of her brother's release, and I quote, we never gave up hope that he could survive and come home safely to us. She was right. Welcome home, Mark Frerichs. David, what else do we know about Mark Frerichs and what led to his release? So he's a former Navy diver. He was uh, working as a civilian contractor uh, in Afghanistan as an engineer uh, when he was captured by Taliban forces a couple of years ago. Um, 
there was a pretty nasty piece of work released uh, by the Americans to to buy his freedom. Uh, you saw President Biden admitting that it was a difficult decision he had not taken lightly. In order to uh, get back Mark Frerichs, the Americans allowed a man called Haji Bashir Nordzai, who was one of the worst drug barons in Kandahar uh, going back to the 90s, who then briefly flirted with, uh, with kind of helping the Americans at a certain point and then fell out with the Americans. But he is a very long-standing financier, of the Taliban back to the 90s, very close uh, to Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban. He had been uh, basically lured back to America uh, several years ago in 2005 uh, and was arrested and put on trial and eventually convicted of being a very serious uh, drug smuggler and drug baron. He's now been given a hero's welcome in Kabul. Interestingly, the reporting is that one of the reasons that there was a real urgency on the American side, perhaps explaining why they were willing to do this swap for this drug baron, was that after that American drone strike in Kabul a few weeks ago, killed the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri. There was a real fear in the Biden administration that this would be taken out on Mar Frerich, who was in Taliban custody. I, I believe there is another American uh, reportedly in custody. Still, we shouldn't forget Ivor Shearer, uh, an independent filmmaker taken in Kabul. And so this is, you know, even as America has left Afghanistan, you have to keep dealing with the Taliban. And that is one of the kind of the difficulties of being a big country like America. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Up late again from the Chinese capital, that's David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. Also with us, Sean Carberry, Managing Editor at National Defense Magazine, and Vivian Salama, National Security Reporter for The Wall Street Journal. She's also the author of The Long Journey Home. That's a children's book about a young refugee. Vivian, Sean, David, thanks for joining us. Aileen Humphreys is the producer of 1A On Demand. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. And Matthew Simonson has been producing our on-demand shows. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast and Kennedy Wright manages our remote connections. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.